Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. It's Hungary, July 1869, and the young Emma Ortsi, the daughter of a wealthy aristocratic family, is almost four years old. She's excited because today, the 22nd of July, there's a grand party on her father's estate in honour of her sister Madeleine, whose fifth birthday it is. It's a masquerade party, with men and women cross-dressing and disguised in elaborate costumes. There's a lavish banquet, and the best local musicians have been hired for the event. Musicians who've been taught by Emma's father, himself an extremely accomplished musician. There's music and dancing, food and drink. But as Emma would later recall in her memoirs, something was not quite right. In the midst of all this boisterous gaiety, only a few could have noticed that the old butler had slipped into the room and going up to my father, whispered something in his ear nor seen my father rise immediately and follow the butler out of the room. Emma, very young at the time, nevertheless recalls watching her father leave the room so abruptly. His rising so suddenly sent the sleepiness out of my eyes, and after that I only remember things in a confused, dreamlike manner. I remember that Madeline and I and the other children were picked up and taken up to bed. Tonight, however, we neither of us got to sleep. As a rule, this part of the house was always very quiet, but tonight... There seemed to be a perpetual hum going on from every part of the house. Nothing definite, no individual sounds, just a perpetual buzzing like the approaching of lots and lots of horses and carriages coming nearer and nearer. And yet not like that either, just noise. At first we thought, at least I did, that it came from the dancing on the floor below, the music and so on. I longed for Julie, our French nurse governess, to answer when we called. After a time, I noticed that a red glow shone through the slats of the shutters. I called to Madeline, and she got out of bed. It can't be sunset, can it? I suggested. And Madeline shook her head and whispered, shh, 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 listen. I listened. I heard Julie's voice at last. She was murmuring, mon dieu, and again, mon dieu, mon dieu, at frequent intervals. Ileona, our nursery maid, was talking with her. And Ileona was saying now, it's all burning, burning, all the fields, the corn, the maize, the oats, everything. And Julie murmured, Mon Dieu, I pitié de nous. Then Ileona went on talking. She said, the stables, you know, mademoiselle, the cow sheds, the farm buildings, all of that, they're trying to save the poor animals who were so frightened. Poor cows, the horses, the pigs, the geese. Oh, it's dreadful. Those wicked peasants. They should have thought of the innocent animals. That is about all that I actually remember of that terrible night. It was only years afterwards, and then only very gradually, that Papa and Mama revealed to us the terrible tragedy in all its details. Baron Artsy's estate had been burned to the ground. 
Those wicked peasants, it seemed, were growing increasingly irate at the proposed use of new agricultural machinery. They didn't look kindly on the Baron's enthusiasm for new French and German agricultural methods. And despite his best assurances, the fairly reasonable assumption on the part of the farm workers was that these machines would replace the need for much of their labour. And so, on the night of Emma's sister's birthday, the land and crops went up in flames. And not long after, the Baron took his family and left the estate behind. And so began the peripatetic early life of, to give her her full name, Baroness Emma Magdalena Rosalia Maria Josepha Barbara Ortsi. Today she's known simply as Baroness Ortsi, author of The Scarlet Pimpernel, a character you've probably heard of but may not know too much about. So, who was the Scarlet Pimpernel exactly, and how did this enigmatic English hero come to be created by a Hungarian baroness? Well, to answer that we need to follow Emma's family to Budapest, their destination upon leaving their country estate. It was here where Franz Liszt, the world-renowned composer, became a friend and mentor to Emma's father, and through Liszt's influence, Baron Orzi became the director of the Royal Opera House in Budapest. He resigned the position a few years later and the family moved to Brussels, where Emma and Madeleine were sent to live in a convent school, and where, not long afterwards, Madeleine tragically died at just 12 years of age. Another move brought the family to Paris and another convent school for Emma, where she learned the French history that would prove so important for that best-selling novel which would become her legacy. Finally, around 1879, the family moved to London. And it was only then that young Emma Ortsy, future English-language novelist, began learning English. It was her fourth language. She already spoke Hungarian, French and German. This was the beginning of Ortsy's life in England, and despite her roots and long family history in Hungary, she would soon consider herself English in every regard. She studied art and soon met an illustrator, whom she later married. She was, it seems, quite an accomplished artist, and she had her paintings displayed at the Royal Academy. But in the end, it was literature that would be her calling. Ortsy realised that good money could be made writing for the extremely popular literary magazines of this period. And at that point, in the late 1800s, detective fiction was hugely popular and in demand by the reading public. And, of course, there was one name on everybody's lips. Sherlock Holmes, the celebrated creation of Arthur Conan Doyle. Doyle had published two short novellas um, with Holmes as a character, which didn't really make much of an impression on, on the public or with the critics. And it was really only when Doyle went to the Strand magazine, which was an illustrated family magazine that could be pu- could be purchased monthly, and transferred Holmes to a short story format in that magazine that somehow the marriage of kind of form and character came together beautifully and captured the imagination of the Victorian reading public. This is Dr. Claire Clark. I'm Claire Clark. I am assistant professor of 19th century popular literature in the School of English at Trinity College Dublin. So it was in magazines that detective fiction really took off, a fact which Ortsy was very aware of. But how do you compete with Sherlock Holmes? Unless, of course, he dies. As you've spoken about before on this podcast, Doyle had a very complicated relationship with Sherlock Holmes. He didn't really want to be known as a writer of detective fiction. He saw himself as a historical novelist. And for that reason, he was constantly trying to kill off Holmes. Um, And he, he did succeed in that in December 1893 in a story called The Final Problem 
where Holmes disappears off Reichenbach Falls in a struggle with Professor Moriarty. Um, and although Doyle would resurrect Holmes many times as it happened over the next 30 or so years, at that time in 1893, he really did think that Holmes was dead. And the editors of The Strand were really devastated by this because Holmes had been instrumental in really increasing their reading numbers hugely. Um, So they were desperately trying then to fill that void with other detective stories, very much in the Holmesian model. Um, And you find at this time, because there's a kind of proliferation of professional writers who are able to turn their hand to lots of different popular genres, a lot of these kind of working writers are, are going to start churning out detective fiction and also a number of female writers um, of which Ortsy was one. Um, She's very much writing in that kind of Holmesian model and trying to fill that Holmesian void. Filling the Holmesian void was a lucrative and challenging proposition and so Ortsy began writing detective fiction with many of the same features as the Holmes model but with her own variations and twists. Her earliest success was with the Old Man in the Corner stories. These were armchair detective stories in which the eponymous old man solves mysteries brought to him by a young journalist named Polly Burton. The old man claims to have the intelligence that the police lack, and he's capable of solving these complex mysteries simply by considering all the evidence presented to him by Polly. The stories were first published in the Royal Magazine, one of a number of magazines set up to try to profit from the success of The Strand. She started off in 1901 with a series of six um, mysteries of London. So that was six stories set in in the city of London. So obviously, you know, harking back to that urban setting that had been so important in the home stories. Um, And then she expanded it out in 1902 with a second series um, called The Mysteries of Great Cities. And she moved out to kind of cities all across um, the UK. Um, There is a mystery of Dublin, Uh, for instance. um, In the mystery of Dublin, um, there is a, let me see, (laughs) a forged will and a bacon millionaire is murdered uh, in Phoenix Park. (laughs) So... um, you know, the, uh, the one thing that crops up in a lot of Ortsy's stories, actually, is that Irish people are generally not to be trusted. <laughs> so, yeah, that comes up a few times, um, but it certainly comes up in the Dublin mystery. I'd recommend it. It's a good story. Nice little twist at the end as well. And I'll put the links to all the stories mentioned on the Words to That Effect website as well. The Old Man in the Corner stories come at a midpoint in detective fiction, between Edgar Allan Poe's early Auguste Dupin detective stories of the 1840s and the later tales of Agatha Christie from the 1920s onwards. The Old Man highlights this when he describes how he solves crime. Another way that he talks about himself in terms of how he solves crime is that he says, um, crime interests me when it resembles a clever game of chess. So he's kind of looking... back again to Poe with that kind of idea of um, thinking about crime fiction as a mental puzzle or some kind of mental excitement. But it also kind of looks forward almost to Agatha Christie and thinking about those kind of highly formalised crime narratives, which are kind of a puzzle or a game. So 
Uh, Ortsy's really kind of positing this idea that, you know, one one man of extraordinary intelligence can be enough to kind of um, restore order um, or, you know, fix the problems of the city. But I suppose what's interesting in relation to that is that he doesn't fix the problems of the city. He has the potential to do it. He has the intelligence to do it, but he won't go to the police. He won't help them. He just enjoys the solving of the puzzle. Um, so the the answers that he comes up with are never brought to bear on the criminals. So there's a kind of a strange moral ambivalence, I think, about that. The fact that he can solve these crimes, but he doesn't actually bring it to bear in any official way. So that, that's quite intriguing, I think. While Orty found success with these detective stories, it was the year 1903 that would change her life forever. This was the year she wrote The Scarlet Pimpernel, the story of a mysterious Englishman who uses elaborate disguises to heroically rescue French aristocrats from the guillotine during the French Revolution. The enigmatic hero simply calls himself the Scarlet Pimpernel, which is a type of flower, and his identity is known only to a select few. In reality, he is a wealthy English aristocrat, Sir Percy Blakeney. In Orsi's autobiography, she recalls the story of the character's creation. Strangely enough, that personality of the Scarlet Pimpernel came to me in a very curious way. I first saw him standing before me, don't gasp please, on the platform of an underground station, the temple. Now, of all the dull, prosy places in the world, can you beat an underground railway station? It was foggy too, smelly and cold, but I give you my word that as I was sitting there, I saw, yes, I saw Sir Percy Blakeney just as you know him now. I saw him in his exquisite clothes, his slender hands holding up his spyglass. I heard his lazy, drawling speech, his quaint laugh. I can't tell you in detail everything I saw and heard. It was a mental vision, of course, and lasted but a few seconds, but it was the whole life story of the Scarlet Pimpernel that was there and then revealed to me. Ortsy wrote the story as a novel, but it was rejected by a number of publishers. The trend was for stories set in contemporary times. Nobody, it seemed, wanted a novel set during the French Revolution. But encouraged by some contacts in the theatre world, she made the story into a stage play, and it was debuted first in Nottingham and then Dublin. By the time it made it to the London stage two years later, it was a massive word-of-mouth success. It played more than 2,000 performances, and it remains one of the most popular shows ever staged in an English theatre. And of course, as soon as the play became popular, everyone wanted to read the book. It became a huge bestseller, and has remained a popular classic ever since. Artsy, of course, wrote a number of sequels, and the story continued to be adapted for stage and screen. Although, from watching any of the numerous subsequent TV or film adaptations, you'd be forgiven for assuming that this story is a swashbuckling adventure tale of heroic rescues and sword fights with French villains. But, in fact, this Scarlet Pimpernel himself never even draws his sword in the novel, and the story is really that of Marguerite, his French wife. It depicts her dawning realisation that her seemingly foppish, superficial and somewhat dim-witted husband is, in fact, the daring, heroic Scarlet Pimpernel. When Marguerite unwittingly sets the evil French agent Chauvelin on her husband's trail, she must race to France to save him. The characters are, for the most part, fairly two-dimensional, but the story does feature a female protagonist with a surprising amount of agency for this period. Marguerite is independently wealthy, highly intelligent, and she commands the respect of her male peers. 
and she risks her life in a daring attempt to warn her husband of the danger he's in. Marguerite's character is certainly a reflection of her creators. Ortsy, too, was a foreign aristocrat in England, but she was also intelligent, independent woman making her own living in London. Marguerite and Ortsy are very much examples of the new woman, a much debated idea in Ortsy's time. This term, the new woman, is something that would have been um, floating around in the 1880s and 1890s. Back to Dr. Clark. It was coined by an author called Sarah Grand, who was a, f- a feminist author. And really what it was, was the, the, the idea of women wanting to do things like enter the workplace, um, women wanting to agitate to get the vote, women saying, maybe I don't want to get married, maybe I don't want to have a child, maybe I'd like to live with somebody, or maybe I don't want to live with a man at all, maybe I want to live with a woman, or just be a spinster. It's part of that kind of burgeoning um, suffrage movement, I suppose, part of the, you know, the, the, the first wave feminism. But while Ortiz's views on gender roles were very progressive, she was very much a conservative in terms of class and colonialism. She was an imperialist and a monarchist and aristocrat who makes her feelings very clear in a work like The Scarlet Pimpernel. The English commoners are simple folk who know their place in society. The aristocratic English are the heroes saving their French compatriots from the bloodthirsty, ignorant French masses. The opening line of the book describing the French crowd is pretty clear. A surging, seething, murmuring crowd of beings that are human only in name. For to the eye and ear they seem naught but savage creatures, animated by vile passions and by the lust of vengeance and hate. Not a fan of the peasants. And if we look back to Ortiz's own words at the beginning of this episode, it was these wicked peasants with their superstitions and fear of change who had burned her father's estate, an event which had made such a vivid and lasting impression on her and, incidentally, at a masked costume ball with cross-dressing and elaborate disguises. There's a very direct link between the French Revolution, Ortsy's own childhood, and the contemporary London she lived in, in which fears of foreigners infiltrating the country were very topical. Real and imaginary threats of foreign invasion, of anarchist plots, of foreign agents acting in disguise would only grow in the years after the Scarlet Pimpernel. Episode 1 of this very show on invasion fiction would be an excellent place to start for more on all of this. Secret agents, fears of invasion, disguised heroes, detectives, they all connect. With the success of The Scarlet Pimpernel, Ortsy's fame and fortune were assured. She continued to write and produced, among many other works, a number of sequels to The Scarlet Pimpernel and more detective fiction most notably the Lady Molly stories. You can definitely see the progression here where she's thinking a lot more about, you know, the the way that these stories are constructed and they are constructed in much more of a Holmesian way, I think, where we have um, Lady Molly of Scotland Yard, who's the principal kind of detective, and then she has her female companion who also works in, in the detective branch, who narrates the stories, but it is very much about them going out into the city. And actually, not just the city, but going all across the country and then going to places like Greece and so on. So she has this huge geographical mobility that, um, you know, even somebody like Holmes didn't necessarily have, which is really interesting. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I think these these are more interesting stories in lots of different ways because... 
you know, she's working in this fictional female department of Scotland Yard. Um, this is in 1910. There weren't actually any female police officers until 1914. Um, there wasn't a female detective officer until 1921. So there's something really interesting there, I think, about the fact that Orsi is imagining um, that, you know, women as being important to the police because they bring a different kind of skills. Um, so what Lady Molly brings to the um to the party as such is female intuition you know she doesn't work by deduction she doesn't work by induction or looking at clues she looks at people she understands their psychology and um she kind of intuits what's going on with situations so you know she reminds me kind of of a kind of um, proto miss marble in that way you know that she she goes in and kind of uses feminine techniques to get to the bottom of mysteries, which is quite fun. Ortsy wasn't the only author writing stories with a female detective in this period, but she was arguably the best. There were a few different people that were experimenting with the idea of female detectives, usually female private detectives. Um, but I think, you know, we're talking about quite a niche area here, of course. But of that kind of area, Lady Molly would certainly be the best known. And I think there's just a kind of, there, there's a playfulness in these stories that's perhaps not there in other ones. I, I think she understands genre. She doesn't take herself too seriously. She seems to have that lightness of touch that Doyle did. Um, so the stories are quite often quite comical. Um, and I think for that reason, they're a little bit more well-known or a little bit more um, well-remembered than some of these other detective stories, which are actually a little bit dull, a little bit flat when you read them. Um, and I don't know for sure if Christy read or say, um, I, I, actually that's something that I'd like to go away and try and find out. It would be very interesting. But it seems to me that, you know, in this character of Lady Molly, we've certainly got the kind of um, the precursor of somebody like Miss Marble. Ortsy lived a long and comfortable life off the back of her work. She and her husband moved to Monte Carlo during the First World War, and they lived there on and off for the rest of their lives. Her husband died in 1943, and Ortsy moved back to London following the Second World War. She died soon after, in 1947. Ortsy left behind a huge body of work, a lot of it no longer read today, but... Her detective fiction remains an important part of the development of the genre, and of course the Scarlet Pimpernel remains a classic. Apart from the direct adaptations of the work, the idea of the Scarlet Pimpernel itself has been hugely influential. This was the first story about a masked hero. If you think about the basic plot, it might sound pretty familiar. A mysterious disguised hero performs daring deeds while covering up his double life by acting as a superficial wealthy socialite. It's the story of Batman, it's the story of Zorro, of the Lone Ranger, of innumerable comic book superheroes, mysterious masked superheroes, whose identity remains elusive much to the annoyance and frustration of their enemies. As the well-known rhyme in the book goes, Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? That damned elusive Pimpernel. The Scarlet Pimpernel lives on. So too does the legacy of Baroness Ortsy. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. For links to all of Ortsy's work, her autobiography, and some other recommendations, head over to the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com. 
The show is also on Facebook, on Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. A load of people actually got in touch after the last episode, which was really nice. It's great to know people are listening and enjoying the show. So please get in touch on Twitter, send me an email, say hi. Or you can sign up for the Words That Effect newsletter as well and let the links and news and updates come to you. Special thanks this week to Dr. Claire Clark. There is a link to her bio and to her work on the website. She has written extensively about late Victorian detective fiction and I'd highly recommend her book, Late Victorian Crime Fiction in the Shadows of Sherlock. Music this week was by the fantastic composer and producer Paddy Mulcahy. Track listings and links to all of his music are on the website as well, wttepodcast.com. Thanks also to Sarah for providing the voice of Baroness Ortsy. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, if you like the show, please spread the word, tell your friends, and I'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.